Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, you're getting this episode immediately. So hi, welcome back. Um, Hello again. Yes. Um, If not, it is now next week. Um, It is still today for us. Um, We just took a (laughs) short break. and It's still today for us. (laughs) Still today. It's kind of a a general uh, quarantine. Still today. Still today. (laughs) Like, have you seen... um... The actor Leslie Jordan, his Instagram, his videos he's been putting up. The one where he's laying on the couch and he's like, well, shit. And he's like, what are y'all doing? This is awful. (laughs) Like, that's his, he's been posting, like, you should go follow him. It's, like, 100% worth it. But he keeps posting, like, videos, like, talking about, like, different stuff. And it's just hilarious. (laughs) I will have to check that out. That's funny. We got our, our animals in line. I gave Rosie some snuggles. Dolly is still asleep with Andrew, and she'll stay asleep with him until the moment he gets up. Um, Kobe is sleeping next to me, so he's content. Yeah. I um, On our little break between episodes, I told Kevin to turn his alarm off because I heard it going <laughs> off. Over, I was like, it's gone off like seven times. And he was like, it's more like four or five. I'm like, it's not much better. <laughs> Hopefully so. we'll be able to edit it out. But if you heard some background alarm noise in the last episode, um, thanks, Kevin. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Kevin. And then after that finally stopped, my little baby kitten just sat outside the door and cried and was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, so. You left me all alone. I gave her a piece of, she's obsessed with ice. She loves ice. Like, she loves to play with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I gave her a piece of ice, like, before we recorded, hoping it would, like, keep her content, but she probably lost it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's why she's crying, because she's like, mom, I lost my ice. I need yeah, some more and ice. she brought, like, she's a fox toy that's, like, her favorite, and so she just drags it everywhere with her. Like, even to the litter box. <laughs> like, it was sitting outside the litter box. So, she put she pulled that outside the door, and oh, she's in a mood. She's having the time. And then, yeah. once we finish recording this episode, we are going to FaceTime Tiffany, and we're all going to do a dance fitness workout together, um, yeah. like we have been doing the last couple of weekends, which has been super fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been really fun. A little pick-me-up from my normal workout, where I just sit here and go, ugh. While I'm working out. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, now you get to see our faces go, oh, while we all work out, so it's great. And we'll all hear a song come on, and we're like, no. No, not this one. <laughs> no more squats. I'm so done with squats. Yeah, a lot of squats. Yes, but, but you know, getting that getting that booty in shape, the quarantine booty. Yep. Maybe I'll look, I'll look good for my wedding after the quarantine, hopefully. <laughs> Except maybe not, because I'm eating pizza and queso and all that stuff. But it's all anyway. about balance, you know. It's- yeah, Andrew went to get um, Krispy Kreme donuts for dessert last night, but mm-hmm. the line like wrapped all the way around the building and down the highway. Uh, so he was like, "Yeah, I'm not like, like Andrew couldn't even get in line because he would be blocking an intersection." <laughs> so, wow, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> so um, these Richmond folks love their uh, Krispy Kreme donuts during quarantine. So we didn't get any dessert last night, so that was sad. But I think I'm gonna make some brownies today. So yeah, I think. I think I might, unfortunately, have to go to the store to get something that we're out of. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get some vanilla extract and some cocoa powder so I can do some baking that I've wanted to do. So I was like, while I'm there, I'll just pick up the little things I've been wanting but haven't gone to the store to get. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just kind of like hoarding a list until you can go get all the things that... Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Good luck with that. Uh, (laughs) So... 
We are obviously covering part two of the Michigan murders this week. Um, so if you have not listened to part one yet, please go back and listen because you'll be very confused. It's very um, important. <laughs> yes. Um, obviously, we used all of the same sources for this week's content as for last week. So I think we're just going to go ahead and dive right into the rest of the story. On July 23rd, 1969, at 11.15 p.m., resident faculty advisor at Eastern Michigan University calls campus police because one of her student residents, Karen Benjamin, never came home. Um, and uh, her friends also said they haven't seen her since around midday. So her friend said that she did go to pick up a wig around noon that day. And the girls at the wig shop remembered her because she said she was doing two things that she'd never done. Um, Gotten a wig and rode on a motorcycle with a stranger. Which, probably don't recommend that second one. Probably not. Um, That sounds like an interesting day. I mean... I mean, definitely. (laughs) So, they report uh, her getting on the back of a motorcycle with a young, clean-cut guy. Dark hair, about six feet tall. And he's wearing a striped shirt. So... Karen's boyfriend said, you know, she would never get in the car with a stranger. So that's very weird. Um, They did a sketch with police, but they weren't very confident in it. Um, You know, memories are not as good as we want them to be. Yes. Um, But they did describe the bike as a Honda after they looked at several makes and models. So police interview a girl at another nearby shop who says that she's into motorcycles and the guy was driving a Triumph. So they also interview another girl who reports being approached by a guy of the same description while she was walking. He rode his motorcycle beside her and was like revving the engine and smiling, but he eventually drove away. Sounds like a douche to me. Anyway, sorry if you're not the guy and you're just a nice guy, but you're a douche. Don't do that. (laughs) The young officer had just recently graduated from EMU and had been in the area that day and seen the guy in the striped shirt on a motorcycle, and he recognized him as a member of a local fraternity. So they went to the fraternity, and the guy said it sounded like John Norman Collins, which that name starting to sound a little familiar. I remember that name. Hmm, that sounds familiar. I think someone mentioned him earlier as being seen with Joan, um, but... Remember, the timelines didn't line up, so they were like, oh, okay, and then he said he was out of town at his mother's, and also his uncle was a police officer, so they're like, oh, well, couldn't have been you. Yep. So, officers decided to speak with John and his friend at their home, which was near where Joan lived, and John said he was around that day, said, you know, yeah, I was riding around that day like a lot of other guys on motorcycles, like, there's plenty of guys on motorcycles. So, the officer saw him talking to a young blonde girl and asked who she was. Yeah, so John told him it was just, you know, a fellow student, and the officer later interviewed her. Um, and so, the officer took a photo of the license plates on Joan's motorcycles, and John's starting to get really agitated. So, the officers do go to the, the home of the girl John said he was talking to. She's like, yeah, we used to date some. Um, and she did produce two photos of him when they asked her to. So they went back and showed this picture to the girls at the wig shop and they said, yeah, it might be him. Um, And they showed it to the girl who had been approached uh, on the street by him. And she was like, yes, that's definitely him. On July 26th, Karen's body was found on the side of the road by a couple checking their mail. Um, Autopsy does show that she was killed the day she went missing. She had been beaten and strangled. Um, a little bit of a trigger warning here. Swelling and cuts in the vaginal area indicated rape. 
and since they'd previously suspected the killer of moving the bodies and visiting them, they decided just to hold off on releasing any information of the body to the public, including her parents. They didn't tell them, which, that's horrible. Um, while they staked out the area. So, they secretly removed the body, and then with some, like, undercover cop cars guarding the rural road, and they got a mannequin from the local department store to disguise the body in case the killer did come back. And in the book, um, one of the police officers wanted to leave the actual body, and his boss was like, no, that's going too far. Like, we're not going to, like, like, we can't leave this body out here. Um, yeah. In the elements, like, to, like, tempt this killer to come back like that's a bit much like we have to even though he's agreeing to not tell her parents yet he's like we have to be respectful enough to like get her body somewhere safely and then um but they were worried about like if the guy comes by and he can see clearly there's nothing there so they're like well let's get something that could pass for a body like like far away in the dark because i mean then he's gonna have to get close enough to see that it's not real that they'll be able to like grab him basically yeah so At 12.15 a.m., it's pouring rain, and the police saw someone run by and radioed to another car. Um, But the radio ended up having a delay, and they couldn't really hear each other, and so the guy got away without anyone getting a good look at him. And then, um, sorry, I didn't put this in the notes. I just remembered it from the book, so I just wanted to throw this out there. Um, So basically, the media then got wind of this whole thing, and so these police officers were just, like, mocked, like, all over the news. like, Like, basically, these, like, bumbling idiots, as they called them. Like, they tried to, you know, do the stakeout, and, like, the guy ran right by them, and they couldn't, like, get a hold of each other to, like, even get anything, and they delayed. And, I mean, this is the second time that's happened, too, because they yes. were staking out that, exactly. was a, it was a farmhouse, yep. and the guy obviously had come over, because they're like, this wasn't here, and so it's like, is everybody okay? Like, do y'all need some more coffee? Why <laughs> like, this guy has gotten by you guys? So, yeah, so at this point, like... The media is just, like, trashing the cops. The public don't have a lot of, like, confidence in them and catching this guy. Because, I mean, this is now the seventh young woman who has been murdered in their little town. And they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, so this point, like, the tensions are getting really high after this whole incident, basically. And so they did end up doing, um, you know, a detailed autopsy. And, again, a little bit of a trigger warning. This is kind of rough. You might, if you want to skip it we understand um so there was a rag stuffed deep into her mouth and her own torn panties shoved all the way up into her vagina um her panties did have seminal fluid as well as many small hair particles that did not match the victim um and there were burns from her shoulder to below the nipple that looked like the killer had burned her with some type of acid which is horrible and terrible yeah so rough So, as we mentioned earlier, uh, there was John Norman Collins, um, who's being, you know, kind of suspected, um, because, you know, he was the guy on the motorcycle, um, and so he was born June 17th, 1947, in Centerline, Michigan. His mother had remarried several times, all to abusive men. Um, he did have a strong connection with his aunt, who was only 10 years older than him, and, Um, Also, when he was 17, he did end up beating his sister unconscious because he found her in bed with a man. Uh, She was married to someone else, and so he also beat the man he found with her. Mm -hmm. A little bit of an anger issue there. And this Um, kind of highlights to his views around, like, women and, like, purity and that sort of, like, 
mindset that he's angry at her for having sex with another man while she's married, so he's going to beat her up. I mean, I don't get the logic. I mean, don't cheat on your husband, because that's kind of crappy, but also maybe don't beat up your sister when you find her cheating on her husband. (laughs) Yeah, it's just kind of all-around bad decisions here. Yeah. So they decide to stake out at John's house. He returned home around 11 p.m. on July 27th, and that was the day after Karen's body was found. The roommate Arnold tells John, you know, hey, police have been waiting on you all weekend. Um, So John just goes outside and starts talking to them. And they're like, well, why don't you come on down to the police station with us? He's like, okay, yeah. So the cops who did bring him in, they were new. They weren't detectives. They interrogated him. Um, and he denied everything, said, yeah, I was around campus that morning. I went to a local motorcycle shop to pay a bill and I was there for about an hour. Um, you know, I had to buy to eat at a drive-in where a friend worked. I got home around two 30. Um, I took Arnold out to teach him how to ride a motorcycle and police don't really have anything on him. And so they just can't really hold him. Police do end up finding out he and another friend had rented a camper with a check on June 21st and payment was stopped on the check and the camper was never returned. So the friend testified they'd gone to California for two weeks um, and there did end up being an unsolved murder similar to the others in California while John was there. A 17-year-old named Roxy Ann Phillips was visiting her family for the summer. Uh, Friends reported that she seemingly just disappeared while walking home, and her body was found stabbed to death on a deserted part of the beach two weeks later. Roxy's friend said she had met a guy from Michigan named John the day before and had told Roxy about him. She had described the car that John had um, and said that the camper was left in an alley behind his friend's uncle's house. Uncle says they arrived near the end of June and they were supposed to be gone by mid-July. Um, his friend who's with in California also confessed that they'd both been involved in a string of burglaries around the campus. Um, so it looks like he does have some previous history. Yep, and so they think that um you know, obviously having a very similar murder to these murders in Michigan during the, like, three-week time period that John was in California, they're like, hmm, okay, this is a big red flag. And I'm assuming at this point that Dr. Roby, they're like, yeah, it wasn't yeah, no. just coincidence. Yeah, he, he was just another in a long line of suspects that they had, um, along with the journalist. So police notify David Lick, um, who, remember, is John's uncle, who is a police officer. Um, So they notify him of the developments in the case because, obviously, his nephew is a suspect. So before they arrest John, they're like, hey, we just need you to know this, like, professional courtesy. This is what's going on. Um, So David and his family had just returned on July 29th from a two-week vacation, during which time John was coming over to their house to take care of the dog. Um, so John's aunt Sandra, so this was his mother's sister, the one that he was like super close with. Um, so she had noticed black spray paint like all over her basement. So she thought that the black paint was weird and her and David both said that it was not on the basement before they went on vacation. So David was like, well, let's scrape it up and see what's underneath it. So he scrapes it up and he finds this like reddish brown stain. Um, so he's like, "Uh oh, this isn't good. So he calls one of his investigator friends, so they come over and they test it, and it turns out to be varnish. So David's like, okay, I remember um, when I was down here one time, I was staining some furniture, and I did spill some varnish on the floor, but why would someone cover it up with spray paint unless they thought it was blood, and why would someone think that there's blood in the basement that they need to cover up? 
So the investigators do some further testing and they actually find spots of blood in nine places around the basement. So they're little tiny spots. There's one that's splattered like on a shirt that's hanging to dry and like in the corners, just some random small places that maybe you wouldn't easily find if you're trying to clean up a crime scene. And so what they also found were a bunch of tiny hair particles. And remember in Karen's underwear that was unfortunately left inside her vagina, there were lots of little hair particles that didn't match the victim. So it didn't really make sense. But then Sandra says, yeah, before we went on vacation, I cut my husband and son's hair down here with these hair clippers. And I'm like, oh, like this would make a lot of sense. Yeah, totally explain it. Yeah, like if her body was on the ground in the basement, I mean, obviously, if you've ever been in a hair salon, you know little bits of hair get everywhere. And so if her body was there, it would make sense that her underwear would pick up these little hair particles that had been left there. And so Sandra said also missing from her basement was a bottle of ammonia and an empty laundry detergent box. So as far as the ammonia, remember that Karen's body was badly burned. Um, so that is a possibility that that was something that he used. And one of their neighbors reported on either July 24th or the 25th seeing John on his motorcycle leave with the laundry detergent box. Um, she knows for sure that it wasn't the 23rd because she was out of town that day, but she can't remember if it was the 24th or the 25th. But shortly after the 23rd, she did report seeing him leave with that. So on July 31st, 1969, the police arrest John after there is a tentative match to the hairs from the basement and from Karen's underwear. Um, so there's a lot of iffy police work in this case. And so this is kind of like the first part of that. So... As Courtney mentioned, these like rookie cops, you know, were staking out John's house. He came to talk to them. So they're like, okay, we'll take you in and interview you. And then they let him go that night. So now John knows that he's a suspect and he was let go. And he has a couple more days to do whatever he needs to do to before he's officially arrested. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when they find these hairs, again, this is the 60s. So, you know, there's no DNA in the hair. There's no way to know definitively, like, this is the exact hair. They're basically going off of, like, what they can see, like, under a microscope. Like, does this look really similar? And they also had a couple of, like, new tests that they were doing that could match the hair. Um, but basically the... I'm sorry. I was going to say also with hair analysis, um, a lot of times, too, if your hair is just cut, there's not really going to be DNA in it. It has to be from yes. the root. So yep. if these are just clippings of the hair and clippings found, there's no way to do like a definitive DNA test because that DNA yes. is not going to be in the hair as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the new testing that they were doing, you know, it's, it's new testing. This is the first time that this type of test had been used in a criminal trial in the state of Michigan. Um, so basically when it came back that the investigators were like, yeah, like basically they're like, we have to make a call because we have to get this guy before he does anything else or before he destroys anything else. Um, so like, go ahead, arrest him. He is arrested. Um, so police search his car and his home. Um, so they didn't find anything in his house and they only found a small spot of blood underneath the seat of his car. Um, but his car had been recently cleaned because police had been staking him out this whole time and they watched him like cleaning his car but they can't do anything about it obviously um <clears throat> so john's attorney schedules a private polygraph test and says that the results will only be turned over to the police if his team decides that they should do so so i didn't even know that that was a thing that you could do like i know you can do private polygraphs um but i guess because it's the defense they don't have to turn over the results because it's mm -hmm. only like 
the prosecution that has to. Um, yeah. But I have heard of stories of them doing like private polygraphs. I think that was in the I-5 killer, wasn't it? I think it was Diane, but I'm not sure. My Diane sounds better. I don't know. One of the cases we covered, y'all. <laughs> so basically the defense does the polygraph and then they're like, yep, nope, we're not going to give you those results. <laughs> okay. And I mean, is that not evidence in itself? Like, okay, well, clearly. Yeah, like if your attorney <laughs> I mean, uses this test to prove your innocence and then you're like, mm, nope, I'm not going to tell you what that said. Okay. Yeah. Little suspicious. <laughs> yes. So the police are going to do a lineup with John because remember there were four witnesses the day that Karen disappeared. So there were the two girls that worked at the wig shop. There was the girl that worked at the shop next door who was into motorcycles, who gave a better description of the motorcycle. And there was also the girl on the side of the road that he um, tried to pick up, drove up next to. Yeah, yeah, that he tried to pick up. So the day before this lineup, the police officer takes John's mugshots over to these four witnesses. Um, and he's like, hey, do you, is this the guy? Do you think this is the guy that you saw that day? And so all the witnesses were like, uh, I'm not sure. Like, no one for sure said like, oh yeah, that's him. They're like, I don't know. Maybe it could be. Yeah. Um, but you know, obviously you can't do this. Um, so the next day all of them show up, um, for the lineup and during the lineup, they have John switch numbers halfway through for no apparent reason. So they have your like one through six or whatever. And they're Mm -hmm. like, Number three, switch was number five. For no apparent reason, which obviously is going to make this person stand out. Yeah. Like, so the, obviously the, the the witnesses are focused in on this guy more. And again, you know, they saw the picture the day before of this guy's mugshot where the police are like, are you sure it wasn't this guy? And, and I'm pretty sure like in any case today, if this had been found out that this happened, the defense would be like, well, clearly this is like witness tampering because you're like, implanting in their head this person's face and then they're seeing them the next day and you know even if they don't realize it they're gonna be like oh i think it's him because they'd seen that picture like yeah yeah because he's going to look familiar to you because a cop just came to your house yesterday and showed you this picture and so the police officer that went to their house wasn't like oh, hey, tomorrow say it was this guy. He was just like, are you sure it wasn't this guy? Okay, well, I hope tomorrow you'll be able to make the right decision to put the killer behind bars. Okay. Which is obviously putting a lot of pressure on them to pick someone. And, I mean, that's just wrong. So, obviously, all the witnesses ID'd John in this lineup. Um, So, when this goes to trial, his attorney does challenge this and was like, I want to move for dismissal of this eyewitness testimony because it was clearly tainted. But the judge rules that it was okay because they didn't pick him out from the pictures. They picked him out from the physical lineup. That makes that really absolutely make sense. no that... sense. So I guess the judge is saying if the cops had showed him the picture and was like, is this him? And they were like, oh yeah, that's him. Oh, that's a tainted lineup because that's his mugshot. But if you showed him a picture the day before of who they're supposed to be picking and then they picked the guy out in a physical lineup, that's fine. Totally. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, so you're not supposed to do that. That's not okay. (laughs) Okay, so now we get into the key points of the trial. So one of the key pieces of evidence included John's timeline for the day. Um, So the girls at the wig shop said that he left with Karen on his bike around 12.30 p.m. And so remember Courtney said that he um, told the police that that day he um, went to, he drove around campus for the morning, he went to pay a bill at a motorcycle shop, he went and had lunch with a friend, and then he taught Arnold how to drive a motorcycle. So that was his alibi for the day. Um, So the wig shop girl said that he left around 1230. So the guys at the bike shop say that he was there around like 1 to 2. So they 
interviewed like four different people at the shop. They all said they remembered him being there like about an hour, like because he would just like stay and kind of like chat with them or whatever. Um, and they all remember they were eating lunch when they got there, so they couldn't remember exactly what time. But they're like, we usually eat run lunch around like twelve thirty one ish, you know, it was somewhere around there, so one to two ish. Um, and so. John had said that he got home to ride motorcycles with Arnold around 2.30. So Arnold originally confirms that story and was like, yeah, we went riding around 2.30. And then later he's like, "Mm, actually it was like 4.30. And so when police are like, okay, well, where did those two hours come from? Like, why did you change your mind? So Arnold said that on July 27th, when John got back home after the first cops questioned him, he was like, hey, you remember that day, right? Like, you remember what we did? We, we rode motorcycles. Um, and Arnold's like, yeah, yeah, I remember. And he was like, yeah, I remember it was like 2.30. And Arnold's like, mm, I thought it was like later in the day. And Arnold says that John told him like, no, it was it was 2.30. Like, I just need you to remember that it was 2.30. Um... And so the autopsy showed that Karen likely died between 1 and 3. So if his only alibi after 2.30 is Arnold saying they went riding around 4.30, she could have been killed as late as like 4 or so to give him time to get back to ride the motorcycles with Arnold. Yeah, and we don't know how definite the 4.30 is because clearly Arnold's like, it was later in the day. I mean, it could have been 5. You know, that's 30 minutes. That's nothing. (laughs) Because that's the thing, too, like, how exactly do you remember your day of, you know, oh, I left around this time, I got home at this time, yeah. I don't know. So, to get again, get back into some of the police mishaps in this case, um, the girls at the wig shop and the guys at the bike shop said that police questioned them over and over and over. So they would come in, they would grill them for, like, an hour, they would come back the next day, they would call them on the phone, so they were just, like, constantly, like, okay, now was it this time, or was it this time? Are you sure it wasn't closer to this time? What about this time? And so... So one of the guys at the bike shop actually testified on the stand that he's like, I just agreed to whatever the cop said because I couldn't even remember at that point. He's like, you know, this happened a week ago. I, what time did somebody come in to my work a week ago? I don't know. And then you asked me like, could it have been closer to this time? Could it have been this time? He's like, yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't even remember anymore. Um, And so there were also two statements signed by guys at the bike shop that had wrong times on them. Um, So the guys said that the cops had come in with the statement and they like read it over and they're like, oh, no, actually it was closer to this time. So they're like, okay, no problem. Just sign it. I'll just handwrite it in when I get back to the office and fix it. And they were like, okay, but they never fixed it. So um, just general life advice. Never sign something that someone says they're going to fix for you later. Um, No, you need to see what exactly it looks like before you sign it. Especially in like a criminal trial. Yes. (laughs) So one of the key parts of the evidence was Arnold's testimony. Um, So again, Arnold disagrees with the timeline for what time they went um, riding motorcycles. And then Arnold also says that after that first night that he, that John was questioned by police, John comes home. They're like hanging out in his room um, with the other friend that they, that John went to California with. Mm -hmm. Um, So the three of them, they're like hanging out, playing video games, whatever. Um, So he, John took a box outside and Arnold said that he saw a woman's purse and jeans inside the box um, and said that he maybe saw a shoe, but he wasn't sure. Um, And those were all things that had been missing from all of these victims. Um, so he said that John was like gone for a couple of hours. And when he comes home, Arnold's like, Oh, where'd you go? He's like, Oh, I just like had some things I was getting rid of. Okay. Some spring cleaning. (laughs) Yeah. In the middle of the night, no big deal. So Arnold was the one that pointed police to the friend that John went to California with. So that's how they got that friend's testimony. Cause Arnold's like, Oh yeah, here's the guy that he went to California with. Um, 
And then Arnold also tells the police that him and John and the friend from California, I'm sorry, I don't know his name. His real name isn't included in the book and I couldn't find it online anywhere. So we're just going to call him the friend he goes to California with. Um, But Arnold says that the three of them had been out um, in the friend's car the night that Joan went missing. Um, so if you remember, Joan was... The, so three guys in a car. Uh-huh, and it wasn't a car that John was driving. So they're like, oh, this red car with a black vinyl top. Guess who drove a red car with a black vinyl top? The California the friend. friend. from California. Yep. <laughs> um, and so Arnold says that they were out driving around. You know, she asked for a ride, which Courtney said it was only like 20 minutes. So um, John was like, yeah, he's like, let's pick her up. We'll go back to my house. I'll get my car and I'll take her. So that way all three of us don't have to go. Um, so Arnold says that John took her back to their place and he was like, oh, like, we're going to go up to my room for a little bit before we go out and drive her, you know, to where she needs to go. We all know where that's going to go. Um, and then Arnold said that he came back and he's like, yeah, I made her leave because she was just such a tease. Well, you know, she was also wanting a ride to go see her boyfriend. So she's probably not going to have sex with you, John. Um, yeah. And is he trying to do that whole, like, ask grass or cash and I already have grass and cash. That's how I'm going to give you a ride. (laughs) You know how you know how douches. Courtney, has people said this to you. <laughs> You've never heard that no. phrase. That was a thing back when people hitchhiked. You'd say "ass grass or oh cash." Oh gosh! So they're gonna get yeah. Because here's a funny story. So my mom said like whenever her and my dad go like grocery shopping, I was like, like "Hold on, I need to finish my drink of water because if it's your oh. parents' story, I'm probably gonna laugh really." Hard. <laughs> so they said when they go to the grocery store like my mom will take the buggy back and my dad will bring the car around and every time he always goes ass grass or gas <laughs> and i already have grass and gas <laughs> yeah but my dad said there used to be like bumper stickers that said oh that gosh. for like people hitchhiking like you got to give me one of the three. wow i never knew that i mean like i i get the, the sentiment but i've never heard like the, the phrase oh yeah gosh. but apparently my dad says that to my mom <laughs> that's fantastic i love that okay <laughs> Um, so after Joan's body is found, John tells Arnold, he's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't tell anybody that, like, I picked her up that night because that's just, like, a super weird coincidence, but we don't want, you know, anyone to suspect us or, like, like, because, I mean, at this point, Arnold's probably like, oh, no, like, I'll be implicated in this, too, so, yeah, I'm gonna keep that quiet. I mean, that's true, Because as far as Arnold knows, it really is a coincidence that they picked up this girl who later was killed, um... And, you know, John saying, well, I made her leave. And it's like, well, someone else probably yeah. picked her up she got after a she different left. Ride. Like, yeah. Um, and remember the, the two college students that first went to police after Joan's disappearance. They're like, I'm pretty sure it was this guy named John Norman Collins that is in this frat. Um, but police didn't look into it any further because their timelines didn't match. When they briefly questioned John, he's like, yeah, I was out of town, you know, with my mom all weekend. You can ask my neighbor. You can ask my friend Arnold. And then, of course, his uncle being police, you know. Yeah. And also, could it have been that the timeline was off because maybe they saw them at two separate times? Maybe. Like, both were yeah. correct, you know? Like, well, yeah, I saw her with these three guys, but I also saw her, like, two hours later just with yeah. John. I mean, that could make sense, like, hindsight. And especially with how much later her body was found, you wouldn't be able to tell was she killed at 10 o'clock or midnight, you know? Like, when you get several yeah. days past, you're looking at a rough timeline. You're not, like, 12 hours later where you might be able to tell down more to an hour you know and you know half of her body was decomposed half wasn't yep a lot goes into that um and so arnold also identifies a picture of alice kalam as a woman that john had brought up to his room before um so apparently it wasn't unusual for john to bring women home um so he's like yeah i recognize this girl um 
He said that she left mad, um, and, you know, again, sounds like John's trying to bang everything with a pulse, so I'm sure a lot of women do leave yeah. mad, so probably didn't stand out to Arnold. But then, um, John later asked him to hide a knife for him, so, okay, Arnold. Guys, don't do that. If your friend getting... is, like... No, no. Yeah. And if you see two women that have both been murdered, and you know your roommate was with them, I don't care how good of friends you are. Turn that motherfucker yes, in. Something <laughs> is off here. Like, no. But also, thank you, Arnold, for giving yes. your testimony and being truthful after. But maybe you could have done this before seven women were murdered. Possibly. Um, and so Arnold still has this knife. So he gives it to the police. And so they say that the knife is consistent with Alice's wounds. Um, they can't confirm. Obviously, there's, you know, no DNA or anything like that. So they can't confirm this is the murder weapon. But they're like, yeah, it was a similar type knife that Alice was killed with. Yeah. So again, the biggest piece of physical evidence was the hair that was found in Karen's underwear and on the, like, basement floor. Um, so... In the book, there's like 35 pages dedicated to this. Um, but basically, it was determined to be a match. And there were also additional fibers that were found from the hair in both the underwear and on the floor. Um, so this is like little, you know, like carpet fibers or just general like debris. Um, and obviously, it's a basement floor. You're going to have all kinds of random little things. Um, so they did find yeah. that like it, it matched pretty well with what was found in Karen's underwear. So... Experts for the defense testified that this technical science was wrong and that you could not definitively link hairs when working with such a small sample because they had so few hairs and the length of the hair was so small from the clippings. They're like, eh, you can't say for sure that this is, um, that this is a match. Um, so the judge ruled that it was admissible science and it's up to the jury to weigh its significance. So again, the specific tests that were done on the hair this is the first time this test has been used in the state of Michigan in a criminal trial. Yeah. And so it's like, who knows? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so up in the air. I mean, I do think it's so strange that there are these hair clippings and that, like, that's pretty, like, circumstantial evidence yeah. there where it's like, okay, well, maybe. But it is weird that he's letting the jury decide its significance when... The jury probably doesn't know anything about... I mean, this is before most of our true crime shows where we all think we're, you know, <laughs> we defense all think experts. We, know, yeah. we all think we're jury experts mm. on everything. But, you know, this is before that, too. So it's like, hey, you just decide whether you think it's true or not, which yeah. is not a good way to go about it. <laughs> not not a good plan. Um, so after three days of deliberation, the jury does find him guilty, and he is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So again, so this is just for the murder of Karen, um, even though they strongly suspect that he was the one who killed the others as well. Um, so I just wanted to go over a couple of connections between John and the other murders that kind of make them suspect that he was the murder in these cases, because that has to be difficult for the families who were like, I want closure, and I don't know for sure if it was this guy or not. Um, so charges were brought against him for the death of Roxy in California, but after John was sentenced to life in prison, they were like, okay, we're going to drop these charges because it's, it's not worth the taxpayer dollars to, you know, bring him here and go through this whole trial when he's already in prison for life with no parole. Um, so if for some reason he does ever get out on appeal or whatever, they can still try him for Roxy's murder. Um. Because the same fabric of the dress that was wrapped around Roxy's throat was found in the camper that John and his friend had rented and left deserted in California. 
Um, and there's also a probable match. Again, this is very rudimentary science um, for hair matching, um, but there was a probable match of his of pubic hairs found on Roxy's body and found in the camper. Um, and again, circumstantial evidence, but John was also treated for poison oak at a hospital in California during his time there, and Roxy's body was found in a patch of poison oak. So all of the officers who found her body also got poison oak very badly. Um, but John and his defense team argues that he did not get a fair trial because the news of him being charged in Roxy's murder was released prior to him going to trial in Michigan. Um, so during his first trial, they said that they were only going to talk about Karen, like, in the court. They were not going to talk about any of the other murders, even though the public pretty much knows, like, hey, these are the murders. Like, we're, we're tying them all together in our heads. Um... Mm -hmm. But they're like, we're not going to release any of that information. And I guess California had agreed not to release it, but there was a quote unquote miscommunication. And right before he went to trial, before the jury was picked and everything, California released the information that he was also a suspect in that murder. Um, so Mary, who was the first victim, um, so John and Mary worked in an office that was like across the hall from each other at the time that Mary was murdered. And she had an Expo Canadian 67 silver dollar. I'm not quite sure exactly what that is, but it was like a coin mm -hmm. um, that she apparently always wore around her neck. And when her body was found, it was not on her body. And her parents said that it wasn't in her belongings um, after they cleaned out her apartment. Um, but that coin was found in John's room when they were um, searching it for the evidence in Karen's murder. So obviously they couldn't do anything with that legally because that was not on the list of things they were allowed to be searching for. Yeah. Um, but it did tie into making it pretty probable that he was Mary's murderer because he had this coin. Um, again, we already talked in depth about, you know, Joan and Arnold's statement. Um, and there were several other people who reported seeing a guy on a motorcycle, like around Dawn, the younger girl, and, you know, some of the other um, women. It, you know, it's the 60s. It's a good-looking guy on a motorcycle who pulls up and offers to take you for a ride. You know, he doesn't necessarily have to have, like, a connection to these people. Yeah. Um, but as we talked about before, Jane Mixer was a little bit different, um, because that one seemed more planned because it was, um, someone who had answered to an ad in the student union that she was looking for a ride. He gave her like a fake name. So it yeah. seemed a little bit more planned out. She was shot versus, um, being strangled and stabbed. Um, so in 2005, um, police actually arrested Gary Lederman. Um, for the death of Jane Mixer because they are going back through and, you know, running DNA tests on some of these cold cases because technically all of the other murders except for Karen are considered cold cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so DNA on her scarf um, that was used to strangle her was matched to Gary Lederman. Um, so we do know that Jane Mixer um, was not murdered by John Norman Collins. Oh, okay. Um, so then in 2005, police are like, okay, well, let's examine the evidence that we have for the other cases and see if we can get DNA off of anything else. Um, so DNA did definitively link John to Alice Kalam's death. Um, and in later prison interviews, he admits that he dated Alice um, a few days before her death, even though at the time of the trial, he's like, no, I don't know her. I've never met her. Um, and then of he course. also now admits to giving Karen a ride on his motorcycle from the wig shop, but he didn't kill her. Even though, again, previously he says that he never met her. So his most recent story is that he did take Karen on a ride on his motorcycle. He took her back to his uncle's house um, where he was going to feed the dog. And he says that they fooled around in the basement. Um, he says that they didn't have sex, but he did ejaculate in her underwear. 
Okay. Okay. Like, why would you pick that? She's got to put those back on. Right? Like, ew. And then he says that his friend Arnold shows up. And then Arnold was like, oh, I'll give you a ride home. And so John leaves on his motorcycle. And John says that Arnold took Karen in his car. And he says that he, John says that he went back to the bike shop and that Arnold called him later and he's like, something happened, I need your help. And so John goes to his uncle's house and he says that he finds Karen's dead body because Arnold killed her. So he does help Arnold dispose of the body and he says at this time Arnold admits that he killed all the other women too. So... Even though... Um, I don't think... I think he's just mad. Yeah, so no, like, I don't think that's what happened, It was Arnold. John. And, like, that's the thing, too, is, like, if you are the nephew of a cop and you know that these are a huge string of murders and your roommate admits to killing them, why would you not tell them? Yep. So, but I do wonder, just Jacqueline personally, if Arnold had more knowledge about the murders than he says he did. I kind of think he does because... Like, you hid a knife for him. You recognize... At least two murder victims that had been in your roommate's room. And Uh, I do wonder if maybe it was just self-preservation. Like, he knew he was there that night with Joan. And he's like, if I say something, like, I'm going to look suspicious. And also, maybe he's like, well, what if John did do it? And there's stuff Mm -hmm. that could be linked to me. Like, what if he's going to plant stuff in my room? You know, stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. I do think maybe he knew a little bit more than he was saying he did. And I did look up, um, you know, because I was wondering if John had appealed because there is some little, you know, wonky science in it, basically. Sketchy police procedures. Yeah. So this is um, technically this is on Wikipedia, but I looked at the references and it is Mm -hmm. from the actual document um, of the appeals that John filed. Okay. So it's legit. It's not, you know, anything weird. So basically he has appealed it. like four or five times and just keeps trying. But basically this, the um, appellate judges of the Supreme court in 1974, were like, we're not going to review your conviction. Like we're not going to look at it. We don't care. Um, And each ruling stated that no evidence existed to suggest um, in extensive publicity had interfered with the pretrial or trial proceedings. Cause that's kind of what John was saying is that there was so much media that, you know, Mm -hmm. I was just, the scapegoat, you know, yeah. that, you know, interfered with it. Um, and they also said police did not break any protocol in showing two eyewitness photographs of Collins prior to his arrest and they're being able to identify in a police lineup. So they, this is what, not me, the Supreme Court says they don't think they broke any protocol, but this was 1974. So I don't know if later, you know, they said that's not okay. Um, but yeah, basically they keep appealing it and they're like, nope, this, you did it. Goodbye. When was his last appeal? I think it was 1974. Okay. Because obviously. Because that's when the Supreme Court was like, nope, we're never going to no do more. This. Okay. Goodbye. Um, I think because he had also been charged with Roxy's death in California. They're like, okay, well, should we even put all this money and resources into this appeal when you're immediately going to be, if you're released, you're immediately going to be charged by California for this other death. Um, we talked before about the issues with circumstantial evidence, but in this case, like, there's so much circumstantial evidence. Um, and then obviously after 2005, there's no point because now we have DNA that you killed Alice. So, yeah, I think that that played into it as well as the whole Roxy thing. And it's like, look, I mean, even if we say, okay, yeah, we'll appeal it. It's going to be 
it's not going to be overturned. Like, you're still going to be found guilty. And don't get me wrong, there is... There are so many police mishaps in this case with stuff that you're like, mm, maybe you shouldn't do. The hair science is iffy. I don't know. It's if you just go based off of like looks, but also how coincidental that you would find, yeah. you know, these random hair clippings from somewhere. And the main suspect also has these random hair clippings on the basement floor that also has spots of blood, which I don't know. If, they probably didn't have enough even to DNA type. Um, Obviously, there wasn't DNA then, but to, like, preserve the blood to be able to type it now, I'm sure there wasn't enough there to be able to do that. Um, The missing ammonia and the laundry detergent box. um, The blood in the basement. The fact that there's blood at all. Yes. Um, The one... So, the eyewitnesses are iffy with the day that Karen went missing, but you do have his friend that he spoke to that remember the young officer saw him speaking to his friend Mm -hmm. and she was like, Oh yeah, like it's John. So like she puts him in the vicinity of the area, even if the other eyewitness testimony should completely be thrown out, which it should. Yeah. You know, she puts him in the area wearing what the other witnesses reported that he was wearing on the bike that looks similar to what some of the other witnesses described. Like, there's just too much here for him to not have anything to do with it. I mean, you have Roxy, which is the same MO in California at the time that he was there, as all of the Michigan murders while he was there. The fabric that was found around Roxy's neck, it was also found in his camper. The electrical cord that was found in the barn that was um, used to strangle one of the other victims. Like, there's just too much here for him to not have anything to do with it. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, like, as we're saying, like, some of the stuff's a little iffy, but I think it's pretty clear he did this. Like, it kind of reminds me of, like, the Ted Bundy case. Like, we know Ted Bundy did it. But these days, like, the whole, like, his most damning evidence was, like, the the bite mark. And that Mm -hmm. today wouldn't exactly be the most upheld science. But obviously it's clear. Yeah. They both did these crimes. Um, so... Again, we just want to kind of recap with the names of these victims. Um, so we had Mary Fleezer, Joan Shell, Jane Mixer was not John's victim, but she was still a victim. So I, I do want to include her um, in remembrance. Yes. Um, Marilyn Skelton, Don Basham, Alice Kalam, Roxy Ann Phillips, and Karen Sue Bindman. So we just want to remember them and their tragedies and the tragedies that their families went through. Yeah, because it's absolutely devastating. Um, You know, we don't want to focus on John. He can go rot away in prison. Um, Yes, it appears he won't get out anytime soon. Um, He's currently 72, so might not be much longer that he's around. Who knows? I mentioned in last week's episode the Detroit Free Press article, which got into some of these recent developments, um, including the connection to Gary Lederman with Jane Mixer um, by DNA in 2005, um, as well as the DNA on Alice Kalam's body that ties in definitively John Norman Collins, um, as well as his letters in prison um, to one of his cousins. And his interviews where he said that, like, Arnold was responsible. You know, like, all of this kind of recent stuff. So that was a really good article um, by the Detroit Free Press that I do recommend that you look into um, just for, like, the word-by-word interviews letters. Like, that was super interesting. Um, So thank you guys for sticking through with us um, for a two-parter. So, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week... 
um, is that because I'm kind trying, I'm trying to go to the grocery store less, and so all the things that I've bought over the past few months that I'm like, I'm going to make this someday and then never did. <laughs> well, now I'm like, I guess I'm going to make it. Yep. So going to go through all these I groceries. Did, I did. I didn't have making like a homemade Indian meal. So it was like chicken tiki masala with some naan from Trader Joe's. And it ended up being really good. I just used like a jar of tiki masala. Don't think I got too bougie. <laughs> um, I'd love to make my own, but it calls for like 20 ingredients that all cost like 10 bucks that I don't have in my cabinet. Yep. But yeah, so I did that. And I'm just trying to like branch out and make like different meals and new things, you know, just trying to use up what we have so we don't have to keep going to the store yeah very nice so um yeah just cooking and baking and stuff it's nice to be able to do that the dishes suck because doing so many dishes but I feel you on that one because Andrew cooks and I do the dishes and now that Andrew is home all day every day Andrew cooks a lot which means I do a lot of dishes (laughs) and I also don't have a dishwasher so that sucks um but yeah very nice yeah. So, uh, Jacqueline, what's your perk of the week? So, my perk of the week is this app slash subscription called Scribd. Um, so, I don't know what their prices normally are, but basically, you pay like a flat rate every month, and you get access to all of these um, ebooks and like audiobooks, online magazines, you know, whatever. Um, so, because of the quarantine, they did a thirty-day free subscription. Um, so, I subscribed to that, and so I'm on my like six or seventh book um that I'm reading through them before my subscription runs out and you know I don't know I may pay to do the subscription now because it is really cool um it does have more ebooks than my library has and a lot of times with my library if it's like a really good book it's on hold for like six months and like I've been (laughs) waiting on that new Ruth Ware book for like ever um (laughs) but you know so I may continue that subscription but it is really nice of them to do like a 30-day free when they know everyone's at home and you know wanting access to more content and yeah so I've really been enjoying that yeah I think Kindle Unlimited is doing a similar thing too um and I've taken advantage of that too because they have a lot of my library doesn't have a lot of uh, true crime books mm-hmm. on their ebooks mm-hmm. um so it's been good for podcast research for that so um there's a lot of good sources out there uh during this quarantine thankfully for books yes yes i appreciate that very much um so if you guys want to get a hold of us, you can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail. You can reach us on Instagram at caffeinatedcrimespod. And if you feel so inclined, um, you can donate on Patreon at patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes. Um, so we appreciate you guys and we hope you're doing okay during this quarantine. Yeah, definitely. And go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Mm-hmm.